Chapters 67 and 68 of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter 67. The Journey Round the Beach. It was on the fourth day of the first month of the Hegira, or flight from Tamai, we now reckoned our time thus, that, rising bright and early, we were up and away out of the valley of Martare, before the fishermen even were stirring. It was the earliest dawn. The morning only showed itself along the lower edge of a bank of purple clouds, pierced by the misty peaks of Tahiti. The tropical day seemed too languid to rise. Sometimes, starting fitfully, it decked the clouds with faint edgings of pink and gray, which, fading away, left all dim again. Anon it threw out thin, pale rays, growing lighter and lighter, until, at last, the golden morning sprang out of the east with a bound, darting its bright beams hither and thither, higher and higher, and sending them broadcast over the face of the heavens. All balmy from the groves of Tahiti came an indolent air, cooled by its transit over the waters, and grateful underfoot was the damp and slightly yielding beach, from which the waves seemed just retired. The doctor was in famous spirits. Removing his rura, he went splashing into the sea, and, after swimming a few yards, waded ashore, hopping, skipping, and jumping along the beach, but very careful to cut all his capers in the direction of our journey. Say what they will of the glowing independence one feels in the saddle, give me the first morning flush of your cheery pedestrian. Thus exhilarated, we went on, as light-hearted and care-free as we could wish. And here I cannot refrain from lauding the very superior inducements which most intertropical countries afford, not only to mere rovers like ourselves, but to penniless people generally. In these genial regions, one's wants are naturally diminished, and those which remain are easily gratified. Fuel, house shelter, and, if you please, clothing may be entirely dispensed with. How different are hard northern latitudes! Alas, the lot of a poor devil, twenty degrees north of the Tropic of Cancer, is indeed pitiable. At last, the beach contracted to hardly a yard's width, and the dense thicket almost dipped into the sea. In place of the smooth sand, too, we had sharp fragments of broken coral, which made travelling exceedingly unpleasant. "'Lord, my foot!' roared the doctor, fetching it up for inspection with a galvanic fling of the limb. A sharp splinter had thrust itself into the flesh through a hole in his boot. My sandals were worse yet, their soles taking a sort of fossil impression of everything trod upon. Turning round a bold sweep of the beach, we came upon a piece of fine open ground with a fisherman's dwelling in the distance, crowning a knoll which rolled off into the water. The hut proved to be a low, rude erection, very recently thrown up, for the bamboos were still green as grass, and the thatching fresh and fragrant as meadow hay. It was open upon three sides, so that, upon drawing near, the domestic arrangements within were in plain sight. No one was stirring, and nothing was to be seen but a clumsy old chest of native workmanship, a few calabashes, and bundles of tapa hanging against a post, and a heap of something, we knew not what, in a dark corner. Upon close inspection, 
the doctor discovered it to be a loving old couple, locked in each other's arms, and rolled together in a tappa mantle. Halloa, Darby! he cried, shaking the one with the beard. But Darby heeded him not, though Joan, a wrinkled old body, started up in a fright and yelled aloud. Neither of us attempted to gag her. She presently became quiet, and after staring hard and asking some intelligible questions, she proceeded to rouse her still slumbering mate. What ailed him we could not tell, but there was no waking him. Equally in vain were all his dear spouse's cuffs, pinches, and other endearments. He lay like a log, face up, and snoring away like a cavalry trumpeter. Here, my good woman, said Long Ghost, just let me try. And, taking the patient right by his nose, he so lifted him bodily into a sitting position, and held him there until his eyes opened. When this event came to pass, Darby looked round like one stupefied, and then, springing to his feet, backed away into a corner, from which place we became the objects of his earnest and respectful attention. Permit me, my dear Darby, to introduce you to my esteemed friend and comrade, Paul, said the doctor, gallanting me up with all the grimace and flourish imaginable. Upon this, Darby began to recover his faculties, and surprised us not a little by talking a few words of English. So far as could be understood, they were expressive of his having been aware that there were two Karhauris in the neighborhood, that he was glad to see us, and would have something for us to eat in no time. How he came by his English was explained to us before we left. Some time previous, he had been a denizen of Papati, where the native language is broidered over with the most classic sailor phrases. He seemed to be quite proud of his residence there, and alluded to it in the same significant way in which a provincial informs you that in his time he has resided in the capital. The old fellow was disposed to be garrulous, but being sharp-set, we told him to get breakfast, after which we would hear his anecdotes. While employed among the calabashes, the strange, antiquated fondness between these old semi-savages was really amusing. I made no doubt that they were saying to each other, Yes, my love, no, my life, just in the same way that some young couples do at home. They gave us a hearty meal, and, while we were discussing its merits, they assured us over and over again that they expected nothing in return for their attentions. More, we were at liberty to stay as long as we pleased, and as long as we did stay, their house and everything they had was no longer theirs but ours. Still more, they themselves were our slaves, the old lady to a degree that was altogether superfluous. This now is Tahitian hospitality, self-immolation upon one's own hearthstone for the benefit of the guest. The Polynesians carry their hospitality to an amazing extent. Let a native of Wayurar, the westernmost part of Tahiti, make his appearance as a traveler at Partuwai, the most easternly village of Aimeo, Though a perfect stranger, the inhabitants on all sides accost him at their doorways, inviting him to enter and make himself at home. But the traveller passes on, examining every house attentively, until at last he pauses before one which suits him, and then exclaiming, Ah, an amaitai, this one will do, I think. He steps in and makes himself perfectly at ease, flinging himself upon the mats, 
and very probably calling for a nice young coconut and a piece of toasted breadfruit sliced thin and done brown. Curious to relate, however, should a stranger carrying it thus bravely be afterward discovered to be without a house of his own, why, he may thenceforth go a-begging for his lodgings. The Karhauris, or white men, are exceptions to this rule. Thus is it precisely as in civilized countries, where those who have houses and lands are incessantly bored to death with invitations to come and live in other people's houses, while many a poor gentleman who inks the seams of his coat, and to whom the like invitation would be really acceptable, may go and sue for it. But to the credit of the ancient Tahitians, it should here be observed that this blemish upon their hospitality is only of recent origin, and was wholly unknown in old times. So told me Captain Bob. In Polynesia it is esteemed a great hit if a man succeeded in marrying into a family to which the best part of the community is related. Heaven knows it is otherwise with us. The reason is that when he goes a-traveling, the greater number of houses are the more completely at his service. Receiving a paternal benediction from old Darby and Joan, we continued our journey, resolved to stop at the very next place of attraction which offered. Nor did we long stroll for it, a fine walk along a beach of shells, and we came to a spot where with trees here and there the land was all meadow, sloping away to the water, which stirred a sedgy growth of reeds bordering its margin. Close by was a little cove, walled in with coral, where a fleet of canoes was dancing up and down. A few paces distant, on a natural terrace overlooking the sea, were several native dwellings, newly thatched, and peeping into view out of the foliage like summer houses. As we drew near, forth came a burst of voices, and presently three gay girls overflowing with life, health, and youth, and full of spirits and mischief. One was arrayed in a flaunting robe of calico, and her long black hair was braided behind in two immense tresses, joined together at the ends, and wreathed with the green tendrils of a vine. From her self-possessed and forward air, I fancied she might be some young lady from Papeete on a visit to her country relations. Her companions wore mere slips of cotton cloth, their hair was disheveled, and, though very pretty, they betrayed the reserve and embarrassment characteristic of the provinces. The little gypsy first mentioned ran up to me with great cordiality, and giving the Tahitian salutation, opened upon me such a fire of questions that there was no understanding, much less answering them. But our hearty welcome to Luhulu, as she called the hamlet, was made plain enough. Meanwhile, Dr. Longost gallantly presented an arm to each of the other young ladies, which at first they knew not what to make of, but at last, taking it for some kind of joke, accepted the civility. The names of these three damsels were at once made known by themselves, and being so exceedingly romantic, I cannot forbear particularizing them. Upon my comrades' arms, then, were hanging night and morning in the persons of Farnowar, or the day-born, and Farnupu, or the night-born. She with the tresses was very appropriately styled Marhararar, the wakeful or bright-eyed. By this time the houses were emptied of the rest of their inmates, a few old men and women, and several strapping young fellows rubbing their eyes and yawning. 
all crowded round putting questions as to whence we came upon being informed of our acquaintance with zeke they were delighted and one of them recognized the boots worn by the doctor kiki zeke my tie they cried nui nui hannah hannah portarto makes plenty of potatoes there was now a little friendly altercation as to who should have the honor of entertaining the strangers at last a tall old gentleman by name mar harvai with a bald head and white beard took us each by the hand and led us into his dwelling once inside mar harvai pointing about with his staff was so obsequious in assuring us that his house was ours that longo suggested he might as well hand over the deed it was drawing near noon so after a light lunch of roasted breadfruit a few whiffs of a pipe and some lively chatting our host admonished the company to lie down and take the everlasting siesta we complied and had a social nap all round chapter sixty eight a dinner party in imeo it was just in the middle of the merry mellow afternoon that they ushered us to dinner underneath a green shelter of palm boughs open all round and so low at the eaves that we stooped to enter within the ground was strewn over with aromatic ferns called nahi freshly gathered which stirred underfoot diffused the sweetest odour on one side was a row of yellow mats inwrought with fibres of bark stained a bright red here seated after the fashion of the turk we looked out over a verdant bank upon the mild blue endless pacific so far round had we skirted the island that the view of tahiti was now intercepted upon the ferns before us were laid several layers of broad thick puru leaves lapping over one upon the other and upon these were placed side by side newly plucked banana leaves at least two yards in length and very wide the stalks were withdrawn so as to make them lie flat this green cloth was set out and garnished in the manner following first a number of puru leaves by way of plates were ranged along on one side and by each was a rustic nut bowl half filled with sea-water and a tahitian roll or small breadfruit roasted brown an immense flat calabash placed in the centre was heaped up with numberless small packages of moist steaming leaves in each was a small fish baked in the earth and done to a turn this pyramid of a dish was flanked on either side by an ornamental calabash one was brimming with the golden-hued poey or pudding made from the red plantain of the mountains the other was stacked up with cakes of the indian turnip previously macerated on a mortar kneaded with the milk of the coconut and then baked in the spaces between the three dishes were piled young coconuts stripped of their husks their eyes had been opened and enlarged so that each was a ready charged goblet there was a sort of side-cloth in one corner upon which in bright buff jackets lay the fattest of bananas avies red ripe guavas with the shadows of their crimson pulp flushing through a transparent skin and almost coming and going there like blushes oranges tinged here and there berry brown and great jolly melons which rolled about in very portliness such a heap all ruddy ripe and round bursting with the good cheer of the tropical soil from which they sprang a land of orchards cried the doctor in a rapture 
and he snatched a morsel from a sort of fruit of which gentlemen of the sanguine temperament are remarkably fond, namely the ripe cherry lips of Miss Dayborn, who stood looking on. Marharvai allotted seats to his guests, and the meal began. Thinking that his hospitality needed some acknowledgment, I rose and pledged him in the vegetable wine of the coconut, merely repeating the ordinary salutation, Yar Onor Boyoi. Sensible that some compliment, after the fashion of white men, was paid him, with a smile and a courteous flourish of the hand, he bade me be seated. No people, however refined, are more easy and graceful in their manners than the Aimeos. The doctor, sitting next our host, now came under his special protection. Lying before his guest one of the packages of fish, Marharvai opened it and commended its contents to his particular regards. But my comrade was one of those who, on convivial occasions, can always take care of themselves. He ate an indefinite number of pehi lilies, small fish, his own and his next neighbor's breadfruit, and helped himself to right and left with all the ease of an accomplished diner out. Paul, said he at last, you don't seem to be getting along. Why don't you try the pepper sauce? And by way of example, he steeped a morsel of food into his nut full of sea water. On following suit, I found it quite piquant, though rather bitter, but on the whole, a capital substitute for salt. The Aimeos invariably use sea water in this way, deeming it quite a treat, and considering that their country is surrounded by an ocean of ketchup, the luxury cannot be deemed an expensive one. The fish were delicious, the manner of cooking them in the ground, preserving all the juices, and rendering them exceedingly sweet and tender. The plantain pudding was almost cloying, the cakes of Indian turnip quite palatable, and the roasted breadfruit crisp as toast. During the meal, a native lad walked round and round the party, carrying a long staff of bamboo. This he occasionally tapped upon the cloth before each guest, when a white-clotted substance dropped forth with a savor not unlike that of a curd. This proved to be loni, an excellent relish, prepared from the grated meat of ripe coconuts, moistened with coconut milk and sea-water, and kept perfectly tight, until a little past the saccharine stage of fermentation. Throughout the repast there was much lively chatting among the islanders, in which their conversational powers quite exceeded ours. The young ladies, too, showed themselves very expert in the use of their tongues, and contributed much to the gaiety which prevailed. Nor did these lively nymphs suffer the meal to languish, for upon the doctor's throwing himself back, with an air of much satisfaction, they sprang to their feet and pelted him with oranges and guavas. This at last put an end to the entertainment. By a hundred whimsical oddities, my long friend became a great favorite with these people, and they bestowed upon him a long, comical title, expressive of his lank figure and rura combined. The latter, by the by, never failed to excite the remark of everybody we encountered. The giving of nicknames is quite a passion with the people of Tahiti and Aimeo. No one with any peculiarity, whether of person or temper, is exempt, not even strangers. A pompous captain of a man-of-war, visiting Tahiti for the second time, discovered that, among the natives, he went by the dignified title of Atipoi, literally, Poe-head, or Pudding-head. 
nor is the highest rank among themselves any protection. The first husband of the present queen was commonly known in the court circles as Potbelly. He carried the greater part of his person before him, to be sure, and so did the gentlemanly George the Fourth. but what a title for a king consort. Even Pomeree itself, the royal patronymic, was originally a mere nickname, and literally signifies one talking through one's nose. The first monarch of that name, being on a war party, and sleeping overnight among the mountains, awoke one morning with a cold in his head, and some wag of a courtier had no more manners than to vulgarize him thus. How different from the volatile Polynesian in this, as in all other respects, is our grave and decorous North American Indian. While the former bestows a name in accordance with some humorous or ignoble trait, the latter seizes upon what is deemed the most exalted or warlike, and hence among the red tribes we have the truly patrician appellations of white eagles, young oaks, fiery eyes, and bended bows. End of chapters 67 and 68 Recording by Tricia G.